Well, as you've been hearing in the news, multiple reports out this morning that Kawhi Leonard is going to the L.A. Clippers, that he will not be calling Toronto home. But that is not due to a lack of trying to woo Kawhi Leonard to this side of the border to stay in Canada. And that is what led Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, to write a piece about that exact wooing that was taking place. And Aaron joins me on the line now to to talk a bit more about that. Erin, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Jill. Uh, talk a bit about it. Was one particular tweet that came from the federal health minister that got you writing about this? Yeah, you know, I know it was a lighthearted tweet by the federal health minister, Jeanette Pettipat-Taylor. She was basically saying, you know what, I know everyone wants to get Kawhi to stay, so tell you what, we'll give you free health care if you stay here in Canada. And I just, I had to chuckle a bit at that because, of course, uh, we all know health care is not actually free. We pay for it. We just pay through, through our taxes. Uh, and the other thing is people who are very wealthy, like uh, like Kawhi, are, are not really likely to stick around in Canada to sort of wait in line like the rest of us. Uh, a lot of folks who've had experience with the system know it can take, you know, six months, a year sometimes to get to select uh, procedures and treatments done you know they just go somewhere else and, and pay top dollar for it so I thought that was a bit interesting but my broader point Jill was sort of the way the response to someone like Kawhi who's obviously a hero for what he has done and all he's done for the city of Toronto and for this country um, but the treatment of him is, is in sharp contrast to the way we treat a lot of people um, who are as wealthy as Kawhi and who contribute a lot to this country in other ways maybe not as visibly um, and I just thought it was an interesting contrast that when you have a celebrity like Kawhi, there's people tripping over themselves to get him to stay here, whereas when there are other people who are just paying a lot in tax, they're sort of uh, vilified and treated as if they are greedy and selfish and almost the opposite effect, almost try to chase them away rather than get them to stay here. Which is ironic too, because when you're talking about that, we're talking about a lot of people, or in some cases, people who would own companies and who would employ other people and who would provide jobs and do things that we uh, presumably like people to do in this country. Well, exactly. And, you know, Ka- Kawhi did something very visible, very popular. He's a celebrity. That's, that's the reason he's getting this treatment. My point was simply imagine if we treated the other unsung heroes, the people who make a huge contribution, just not as visibly. If we treated them the same way, we might have a very different dynamic in this country when it comes to attracting people, making them feel welcome, making them feel like they're doing something positive rather than that they're the bad guys or bad women for, for you know, building up and contributing to, to the economy. And what do you think, what would be the number one thing that we could change as far as treating people that way? Because we do know, and there have been several reports out and uh, several studies done on this, uh, that people who are in that position, and it is a privileged position, if you're you're, uh, extremely wealthy, it does open up a lot of doors. I think we can all agree on that. But but what do you think we could change or what would be the number one thing to change uh, to make Canada more attractive? I mean, look, at the end of the day, a lot of these folks, they have options and it comes down to how much uh, how much of their wealth can they retain. If you squeeze them too much, um, they can leave and some of them do. And I think we need to remember we're actually I'm not I'm not terribly concerned about uh, them at the end of the day, Jill. I mean, it's hard to feel sorry for them when they are so well off. What I do worry about is the rest of us. If we have a tax system, if we have a political system that relies on them carrying a big chunk of a load, 
we want more of them here. We don't want fewer of them. Uh, the fewer there are, the, the more the load falls on you and me and everyone else. And so I think we have to strike the right balance so that they're contributing, they're contributing their fair share, but it's not so much that it tips the scale over and they, they want to leave because, as I say, that leaves the rest of us to carry a, a quite, a, quite a heavy burden. Uh, you made reference to a recent study in, in the piece that you wrote. It was a Fraser Institute study, but it did look at, at the increase because we often hear that as well, uh, a 1% tax on the rich or tax the rich just a little bit more, they won't feel it and it will lead to, to much better outcomes for the rest of us. But this study is one of several that uh, show that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, look, it's it's quite it's it's intuitive to a lot of people to say, well, you know what? They won't notice. They have so much money. What's another percentage or two? And I understand that. I understand the common thinking as well. What's what's the difference to them? You know, whether they have a couple extra million if they're worth a hundred million dollars. But the studies bear out that they are actually more sensitive to those increases than regular people. And that may be a simple matter that they have the option. A lot of us don't have the mobility that wealthy people do. But for them, if it's a simple matter of you know uh, filling out some forms and getting their account to move things around, uh, to, to change, you know, where they live or where their, their money is located, um, that, that makes it dangerous to try it for us to try and squeeze them too much. And again, it's not that I'm, I'm shedding tears over the folks that are, you know, buying a second or third yacht. Uh, but if those people leave and take their tax dollars with them, uh, that leaves the rest of us to have to make that up. And that can that can be quite painful for, for average people. Oh, definitely. It also, too, I'm guessing, I mean, who knows, maybe Kawhi Leonard's decision is all based on taxes. I would I would doubt that, but maybe it does factor in, or even if it didn't factor in for him, it certainly does factor in when people are looking at company headquarters or moving their workforce to a certain place and looking at the taxes. If we're talking about if somebody can save millions of dollars by going somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And look, I'm not claiming the taxes are the only factor, uh, you know, especially in like the Kawhi Leonard's case. He's from California. I'm sure like most people being home is, is worth something. Uh, but uh, look, taxes are something that are that are completely within the control of a government to change. Uh, you know, you they, they have it within their power to set the tax rate where they want it to. And look, it, it doesn't take as some people also say, well, you know, we raised taxes and the sky didn't fall. That's not really the point. It's not that every rich person is going to leave. My point is that if even a few do, that leaves a big hole that you then have to make up for with everybody else. And it only takes a few to, to sort of really blow a hole in your assumptions about the amount of money you're going to raise uh, by raising taxes. Uh, and I, I thought it was an interesting point. And like you said, it was this was a, a lighthearted tweet that came from the federal health minister. Uh, but I don't think Kawhi Leonard or any professional athlete for that matter, if they're blowing out their knee in Canada, they're not than going on the wait list to get that surgery in Canada like the rest of us do. Well, that's the great irony here is that if you, for all the people who defend our system, and I'm not saying our system is the worst, uh, but I am saying it, we, it is fair game to criticize. I'm very tired in this country of this, de- this, this debate where you make any criticism of the Canadian healthcare system and people immediately point to the American system. There are many other systems in the world that we could learn from. And for those who say, well, you know, we don't want to have a system where the rich get special treatment. We already do. They just leave the country to get it. So I, I really think it's a bit silly to argue, well, we have to keep everything exactly the way it is now otherwise the rich will benefit they already do they just leave the country to go get the treatment um, we are not helping anyone here by sort of forcing a level of mediocrity down on on all canadians all right well it was an interesting piece and uh, i thought it raised some interesting uh, points uh, aaron we'll leave it there but thank you so much for joining us again appreciate it 
Thanks a lot, Jill. Well, if you are a driver in this province, uh, you have probably heard the news or you paid attention when the announcement was made just recently that the insurance you purchase from ICBC will increase if you get a certain amount of tickets or if you are caught with uh, if you are caught to doing an activity that is deemed high risk, given a ticket for something like using your phone while driving, excessively speeding, uh, driving while prohibited, not wearing your seatbelt. So what we don't know is exactly how these tickets will lead to or how much the increase could be when you are getting these tickets. And that's why one Vancouver lawyer says it is more important than ever if you feel you have been wronged to dispute that ticket. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks so much for being back on the show. Thank you for having me. What are your main concerns with what we're hearing from ICBC about drivers who get tickets for these infractions and what impact that will have on insurance rates? I have a lot of concerns about it, but I guess one of my biggest concerns is the real lack of transparency about this. The government has said you're going to see increased insurance rates for two quote-unquote minor offences, but other than giving a few examples like not wearing your seatbelt or just regular speeding or crossing a solid line, they haven't articulated which offences will constitute minor offences. Is it going to be every traffic ticket except for the high-risk ones, or is it only going to be certain ones that relate to your manner of driving. And I think British Columbians have the right to know that. They have the right to know right now what tickets they get today or tomorrow or next week are going to impact their insurance rates when it comes September. Uh, and when we talk about the the uh, more um, excessive ones or the more the high risk uh, tickets as well, uh, what about the idea that uh, we do know for the high risk tickets, things like impaired driving, uh, excessive speeding, that those will, those are, that's a given. We already know that those will lead to higher rates. And I don't take issue with impaired driving uh, convictions or or incidents or excessive speeding leading to increased insurance rates. What bothers me is the electronic device provisions because they're treating any cell phone ticket as a high-risk ticket. And I think that doesn't draw an appropriate distinction between the different types of behavior that can warrant you a cell phone ticket. For example, you can get one for, you know, actively talking or texting while you're moving down the road. And we've all seen people in their vehicles do it. Lots of people who are listening uh, have probably been guilty of it themselves. But there's also the innocent conduct, like having your phone loose in your cup holder while you're getting GPS directions. Technically, that's a violation of the law because you're using the phone and it's not securely mounted. But it doesn't pose any greater risk to public safety than having your phone mounted and getting GPS directions does. No, it's very true. In fact, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, that happened to me the other day because my the mount I have for my phone in my car is a magnet, and I was driving, and the phone fell off. It, the magnet wasn't it wasn't quite on the right place, and it fell off, and it was on the floor. And as this happened, I had looked, and there was a police car, just a, one car ahead of me on the road, and I thought to myself, I can't even at this red light. I can't bend down, like reach down, pick up the phone and put it back on the magnet holder because technically, if uh, that police officer saw me, I would be breaking the law. You would be. By touching the phone, you would be breaking the law, even though it's way more unsafe to have your phone in the footwell of your vehicle where it could impact your ability to use the brake than it is to quickly pick it up at a red light and put it somewhere secure in the vehicle. And yet, if you got that ticket, you would end up paying increased insurance. 
so you talk about this and you've written a, a piece about this, uh, talking about fighting the tickets and that uh, that it's more important now to do that. Uh, it can be expensive, though, can't it, for people? If you get a ticket for doing just that, say you picked up your phone and put it back on the in the bracket or back on on the the whatever's holding it, uh, then you start down this whole legal road of trying to prove why that wasn't difficult or why that wasn't dangerous. And that can end up expensive if you are unsuccessful in your hearing in traffic court and you want to appeal it based on the absurdity of, of, you know, prohibiting that type of conduct. And I think anybody who got that ticket and was convicted would have a very good chance of appeal. But to do an appeal, you've got to take your case to BC Supreme Court. You've got to order transcripts. You've got to file them. Um, there's arguments that have to be prepared. If you're not a lawyer, you know, you, you should get a lawyer to do it, which, again, costs money. And, you know, people have to make that uh, make that judgment and if you don't know how much your insurance rates are going to go up you can't weigh the cost versus the benefit to you to make an appropriate decision about whether or not you want to be following through on appealing that type of a conviction and that's the other issue here too and you've pointed this out in that we don't know exactly we know that it will be two minor offenses but again not exactly sure which ones but we don't know if somebody is caught and given two of those tickets or a high-risk ticket it's not clear how much the insurance is going up. No, if it's, you know, $40 a year, most people will probably calculate that the increased cost of insurance is not worth, you know, paying a lawyer to dispute the ticket. And, you know, I don't charge $20 to fight a ticket. Um, but, uh, but if it's, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars a year, then you're going to want to know that because, uh, you know, at some point the cost of the ticket and all of the associated consequences is going to far outweigh the cost of a lawyer. And so your cost versus benefit analysis is going to favor disputing the ticket. But the government's refusing to give this information. And ICBC has said something that troubled me, which is that they're not at this point even able to calculate how it's going to impact people's insurance, which means that this plan is not very well thought out. Uh, would you like to see it then broken down into more if you're going to if they're going to go down this route and and link insurance rates to dangerous driving behavior? Uh, do you think it needs to be better defined then as far as and if we use the electronic device as an example, that that it should be better defined that, yes, texting while driving down the highway is more dangerous than sitting at a red light and perhaps touching the phone or putting it back on a holder? Yes, and it would be easy for ICBC to do that. They could simply require police officers upon issuing the tickets to submit a brief report to ICBC. They've already collected the information in their notes, so it already exists. Just submit that to ICBC, describing the conduct that they saw. So ICBC can go, oh, this is a moving uh, violation that deals with safety, or this is a merely technical violation, and so we're not going to characterize this as a high-risk incident. Uh, what about something, though, and, and I guess it's where it gets a little bit muddy, is if the, if the offense is, say, running through a stop sign, and I bring this up because in my neighborhood, there's a four-way stop that it, it's rare to see someone come to a complete stop. Uh, if you blast through that stop sign on a Saturday afternoon, you are putting people at risk, whether it's pedestrians, uh, people on bikes, uh, other motorists, uh, people walking their dogs. If you do a California stop, say, at three in the morning, you're probably not putting as many people at risk. What about something like that, where depending on what time of day it is, that would that would have a big impact? 
Oh, that's another circumstance where ICBC could easily deal with this by getting a report from the police officer and assessing the objective dangerousness of the situation. There are already numerous instances in which police officers are required to report to ICBC or Road Safety BC about what somebody did and whether it constitutes high-risk driving. It's not a huge onerous burden on the police to do that, and it makes the system far more fair, and it distinguishes that conduct, like you said, where if you're rolling through a stop sign at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're probably not going to cause much of a risk. But if you're not stopping and making any effort at all on a Saturday morning when people are out walking their dogs, you're going to have a much more you know, significant problem uh, for public safety. Uh, it might be uh, interesting, or people uh, too, and I don't have the list right, right in front of me, but I know the last time I checked on the list of, of what's actually the defined as high-risk driving, defined by ICBC, uh, people might be surprised what's on that list, because I seem to recall it was something like, uh, if what, if uh, you took a corner too fast, uh, if you uh, sc- tires screeched is on there, there are things on there that my guess is people don't even know are considered high-risk driving. Absolutely. We have definitions of high-risk driving, including things like stunting, which can be screeching or spinning your tires or even just causing the engine of your vehicle to, uh, you know, rev at a higher rate and then therefore become much more loud. Um, there's a ticket that you can get in British Columbia for making loud engine sounds that carries three points, even though just making loud engine sounds is rude and it doesn't pose a public safety risk. Um, ICBC's got a very broad definition of high-risk behavior that doesn't I think with the reality of the way people actually drive and what legitimately contributes to an accident risk. Right, because I think many people would argue, and if you do any driving, you know that at intersections, people are turning left on a green every single time. You're going to have at least two people that are going through on the red, which is probably far more dangerous than someone revving their engine. Oh, probably. But also we've adapted to that. You know, in the lower mainland, if we're sitting at an intersection with one of those advanced greens or with people waiting um, frequently to turn left, we all know that when the light turns red, there's going to be two cars that go through. And so because we've been able to adapt to the way that people drive as opposed to what the law actually says, um, it doesn't make that action that might outside the lower mainland be high risk. And that's why I think we need to have ICBC drawing a distinction based on facts not based on an arbitrary definition of the law that doesn't uh, that doesn't take into consideration how the driving behavior actually impacted others. Uh, what else would you like to see then as far as this was this was announced and uh, drivers were told as of June this is how things are going to be even though we don't know how much it's going to impact the rates what else would you like to see done on this perhaps to make it a bit more transparent? I would like ICBC to disclose the full list of all of the offenses that will trigger insurance rate increases and clarify whether or not they're going to increase insurance for circumstances that are only one instance of bad driving with maybe two offenses. Because you can see lots of times people ticketed for two things. You know, you can get pulled over for speeding going, you know, one kilometer an hour over is speeding. And you can also get a ticket for not wearing your seatbelt. That's only one time that you drove badly. But if you pay that ticket, you have two low-risk offenses, which would trigger an insurance rate increase. Is that how they're going to apply the law, or do they mean two separate instances of bad driving? Um, and that, I think that really needs to be clarified and rethought um, to assess whether or not there's actually, again, a public safety risk posed by that person. All right. Well, it's uh, interesting times, and we'll have to see uh, what happens next uh, with this file. Uh, Kyla Lee, always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
Thank you again for having me. Well, you likely know that injuries that are sustained from falls are a major concern, particularly for older adults. And we talk a lot about this when it comes to long-term care and ways to make long-term care and those scenarios safer. Well, you might think the flooring plays a big role, and in many cases it does, but an SFU team of scientists and patient safety experts from the Fraser Health Authority have been looking at that exact issue. And joining me on the line to take a look at some of the research that has been done so far is Don McKay, Associate Professor in the Department of Biomedical Physiology and kinesiology at SFU. Don, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is uh, interesting because the results weren't exactly uh, what you or the other researchers and scientists uh, were looking for. Uh, but let's first look at what exactly were you looking at uh, in this study? Sure. Well, we know that falls are the leading cause of injury-related death among older adults. And as you said, they're very common and um, important problem in the long-term care setting in particular. So um, <clears throat> we had the idea to modify the floors in resident bedrooms at a long-term care home in Burnaby. And it's in the bedrooms where about 70% of falls happen. And what we did was we randomly assigned 150 bedrooms to either receive installation of this one-inch thick rubber compliant floor or to receive installation of a similar one-inch thick rigid control flooring. And then we tracked all the falls and injuries in those bedrooms for four years. For four years. And so what did you find after, after the four-year period? Well, the results uh, were unexpected. Uh, the flooring that we had selected for this study was chosen because in laboratory testing, it had been shown to reduce impact forces to the hip uh, by about 35% and impact forces to the head by about 70% during falls that we could simulate in the laboratory environment. And so we thought that we would see a reduction in these types of injuries, hip, hip fractures and head injuries, as well as other types of serious injuries like lacerations and uh, bruises and hematomas. But um, the results were unexpected, and we didn't find any detectable difference in the risk or the rate of serious or minor fall-related injuries between those falls that happened in the bedrooms with the, the compliant flooring and those bedrooms that happen, uh, those falls that happened in the bedrooms with the rigid flooring. Um, and so it, it suggests that the, the floor that we, we studied probably didn't reduce the impact forces by enough to have an effect on the frail population that we were studying in long-term care. Uh, and so do you think, does it suggest then that that, that particular floor that you studied didn't make a difference? Uh, does it mean that maybe if you studied a different floor, it would make a difference or the floor is not the issue? Well, I, I think it's actually a bit of both. Um, it's possible that um, other flooring products that offer greater amounts of impact force reduction might make a difference. But um, there's also a couple of other important considerations. And one of those is that um, about 70% of long-term care residents have some type of cognitive impairment. And we've we've found out from other studies that about 30% of falls in long-term care involve some kind of impact to the head. And this this means that the falls that are happening in this environment are, are quite severe. If you watched a child or a young adult, fall, um, you would see they would do almost 
everything possible to avoid impact to the head. Um, but about one in three falls in long-term care involves impact to the head. So we think there are probably neurological consequences of many of these falls, like concussion. Um, but it's really difficult clinically to separate concussion uh, from baseline cognitive impairment in this population. So we may not have been able to fully measure the effect of compliance scoring on, on concussion and other types of head injuries. Um, and then one other explanation is that um, hip protectors were worn in about 40% of falls. And for people that don't know, these are pads or shields that are usually embedded in an undergarment and they're designed to reduce the risk of a hip fracture if somebody falls and lands on the side of their hip. And um, when they're worn at the time of a fall, they're very effective at preventing hip fracture. And as I said, about 40% of falls in our study were um, padded with a hip protector already. So we, we didn't see an added benefit of compliant flooring on top of hip protectors. And we, we just don't know what might have happened or what might have emerged from the study had we been working in a different long-term care home where they didn't have hip protectors. Right, because it sounds like like the the flooring does play a role in that. If you had say carpeted flooring, the fall isn't as is tough when you hit the floor. But then there are also there are issues whether it's a walker or a wheelchair or something that just doesn't work with that kind of softer flooring. So how do you have the hard flooring that makes things accessible but isn't dangerous? Yeah, that's a great point, and um, and of course there are very you know practical limits that exists on how much you can reduce the stiffness of a flooring. Um, I think, you know, an analogy might be like if, if you imagine standing from falling height into a deep pit of foam, like you would find in a gymnastics facility or into a deep pool of water, you wouldn't expect to see fractures and lacerations and bruises and concussions. But of course that it wouldn't be practical to have a really, really soft floor because it would be difficult to move rolling equipment like wheelchairs and walkers and, um, patient lifts, and it would be so unsteady that it might actually cause people to, to have episodes of imbalance and to fall. So you have to um, have a trade-off there. And, um, and that's, that's part of the challenge, I think, moving forward is um, finding products perhaps that provide a, uh, additional impact reduction without being so soft that they're not practical, especially in a healthcare setting where there's a lot of wheeled equipment. And this was, as you mentioned, a four-year study. So what do you do next with uh, these results? A bit surprising, not what you were expecting. Where do you go with the research from here? Yeah, well, um, I think you know, the, the important thing to remember is that we need to keep focused on finding strategies to prevent and minimize injuries in long-term care. And um, compliant flooring is, is one type of technology that we evaluated. And I think we do need to see uh, some additional innovation from industry to um, pr- produce newer types of uh, soft surfaces. Uh, because I think soft landing surfaces still do have merit for reducing injuries from falls. Um, I mentioned tip protectors earlier, and I think it would make a really big difference uh, across Canada if we had more widespread uptake of hip protectors in long-term care because when they are worn at the time of the fall, they are effective for preventing hip fracture, and that is one of the most serious and costly types of injuries from falls. Um, But I think our study also suggests that it's 
useful to start investigating the feasibility and effectiveness of other intervention strategies, including things like padding and soft surfaces on walls and on edges of furniture, because in bedrooms in particular, the the amount of floor space available to land on is actually quite small. And so we think that a considerable amount of injuries may have occurred during fall descent by impacting edges of furnitures or walls, for instance. Um, and related to that, we, we need to know more about how falls happen in the bedrooms. 70% of falls are happening in the bedrooms, but they're largely unwitnessed, meaning no one directly observes the person falling. Rather, they just find the person on the floor after the fall has occurred. So we don't know enough yet about the circumstances of falls in the bedrooms. Um, yeah. All right. Well, lots to uh, to continue to study and uh, interesting results indeed. Uh, Don, thank you for your time this morning. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Thank you, Joe. Well, we've talked about this on the program before. You might remember when the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in this country announced that there would be severe restrictions when it came to sport fishing, when it came to any Chinook salmon fishery, fisheries off the B.C. coast. And this all under the banner of protecting the salmon stocks. Well, fast forward to today, and we're going to get a check-in on what exactly is happening and what the restrictions are doing to the industry and to other industries that depend on sport fishing. And joining me on the line again to talk about this is Jason Tonelli, president of the Vancouver Sport Fishing Guides Association. Jason, thanks so much for being back with us. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so how are things going? Because we did talk to you shortly after the restrictions were announced. Where do we stand now with this? Well, it's definitely had a, a devastating impact on all marine communities. Uh, it's amazing to see the lack of people out there fishing. Uh, we're talking about spots on um, on weekends like today where you would see 100 boats. There's 10 boats. Uh, so there's been about an 80 to 90% reduction in sports fishing activity, and the industry in general is, is generally down 50 to 60%, if not more. And I would imagine, is this uh, people simply not coming because of the restrictions or cancelling uh, trips that they may have had planned? Yeah, that's exactly it. People uh, got the message, unfortunately, that uh, fishing was closed. Um, we are opening on July 15th in some areas and August 1st in other areas, but uh, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, one point that I really want to make, Jill, is that uh, despite these closures, uh, the fishing has been uh, fantastic. Like most people would tell you it's the best of fishing that they've seen in 30 or 40 years. Okay, so what exactly is, is closed right now or what, what, are the, what do the restrictions entail? Well, right now you're not able to retain any Chinook salmon, uh, and that will change coming up on the 15th. Uh, what we were hoping for and what we were asking for uh, was uh, the retention of possibly one hatchery Chinook salmon. Um, it just the, the DFO data shows that about 50% of the fish that we're catching in the southern Strait of Georgia are actually uh, U.S. hatchery fish. Uh, and we're we're looking at catch stats. We keep uh, keep detailed uh, catch statistics, and we're talking about the fishing this year being two to three hundred percent greater than the last ten year average. And half of the fish are U.S. hatchery fish, so that's where we really have a problem with this closure. Uh, because the U.S. hatchery fish then aren't the ones that we're worried about at this point. That's right. So here's the thing: if you look at the DFO quarter wire tag data, it's going to show you that less than one percent of the fish you're catching in local Southern Strait waters, uh, right out here off Vancouver, less than one percent are actually the Fraser River stocks of concern. 
Uh, and of those fish that we're catching, about 50% of them are going to the United States and have absolutely nothing to do uh, with these interior Fraser River Chinook stocks of concern. So if at this point uh, someone's out there, if you catch one of the, the, the U.S. hatchery fish, you have to put it back? You have to put it back. Uh, meanwhile, there is a commercial opening for Chinook uh, in a, just across the border, about 8 or 10 miles south of the border. There's a, uh, there was just a commercial opening. Uh, U.S. anglers are able to retain a couple hatchery fish a day. There's Chinook retention above us. Um, you know, that's, that's where the industry is frustrated. There's absolutely no scientific reasoning for this closure. Uh, and the minister said he was going to make science-based decisions, and this is uh, strictly political, and we can get into that if you want. Uh, well, what do you think it is as far as what, being political? Because we've talked about this in the past as well, saying that this looks good, and on the surface, uh, for people that's, that aren't immersed in the industry, it sounds like a good plan, that if you would stop the fishing, you would help conserve the fish. But uh, you're saying that there's much more going on there. Yeah, there's a lot more going on. I mean, you can't uh, restore a stock back to health by closing down a user group that encounters those fish less than 1% of the time. Uh, that's obvious. What we're really looking for uh, from BFO is we want the gillnets out of the river. Uh, that has a direct impact on these fish as they're migrating through the corridor in April, May, and June. And they need some habitat work done. And unfortunately, in the meetings that we're having with DFO, we're, we're not seeing those answers. Um, the political part of it, the political part of it is basically the fisheries minister told us point blank that he understands the science that we're doing less than 1% encounter rate. He understands the economic impact, but he was forced to shut down the recreational fleet in order to have uh, some constitutional uh, ability and legal ability to uh, potentially reduce First Nations gillnet impacts in the Fraser. That's really what this whole thing is all about. And the gillnets that you're talking about that are currently on the Fraser, it's only First Nations gillnets right now that are allowed, isn't it? Only First Nations gillnets, yeah. So they, they... they basically sacrifice half the South Coast in an effort to have some ability as managers to ask First Nations to reduce their in-river gillnet openings. Um, and the reality of it is, and I was just on the DFO website this morning because it's all public information, uh, uh, when the closure happened on April 18th, since that time, there's been 94 First Nation gillnet openings in the Fraser River uh, some of them seven days. It, it basically adds up to 587 days of gillnetting gill effort in the Fraser for endangered Chinook. Meanwhile, the recreational fleet can't even keep a U.S. hatchery fish, so you can see why there's uh, some anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they changed it, or if, or if the restriction was that, that uh, recreational fishermen could keep U.S. hatchery fish, would that be enough to, to help with yeah. the, the decline? That's exactly the point. We, we understand there's uh, some concerns for these early run-timing fish. Uh, the sports fishing community um, hasn't targeted those fish for many years. The, the, where we would encounter them, we've been closed, and we accept that, and we encourage that. Uh, we, we were only asking for even only one hatchery fish. If, if we were able to keep hatchery fish only, uh, we could sustain the local marine communities, and virtually have no impact on these upper Fraser fish. Uh, those options were put forward to the minister uh, in writing in face-to-face meetings, and they were uh, so far they've been declined.
We talk a lot, and certainly it's the pictures that grip a lot of people when we are talking about the southern resident orcas. Do they eat the hatchery fish? Well, that's the thing. The the fish that we're catching right now, um, this excellent fishing that we're talking about, where we're seeing two to three hundred percent more success than we normally would. Um, these aren't the fish that the southern resident killer whales eat. The southern resident killer whales aren't in our area in April, May, and June, and they don't typically feed on these fish. These Chinook are generally in the 8 to 15 pound range. Uh, the SRKWs uh, generally are focusing on fish off the Fraser a little bit later in the summer and that are much larger in the 20 to 25 pound range or north of that. So these aren't uh, southern resident killer whale Chinook food that we're talking about here. Uh, because that's, I think, when we're talking about conservation, people uh, tend to, to focus a bit more on that as well, and not only the stocks themselves, but the other the other groups that are dependent on them, the other sea life groups that are dependent on them. Uh, what do you do now then, as far as uh, with... with uh, the the number of, of fishing, well, obviously the, the number of people out on the water uh, in a huge decline, that has a ripple effect on a lot of other businesses. Uh, what do you do at this point? Yeah, that's another point that I think people don't understand. They think, well, you know, I don't fish. This is, this doesn't affect me. But it, it literally affects everyone who's listening right now. The trickle-down effect is amazing. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that get spent in this community and the people who rely on that money, therefore spend it on other things. So it does affect you, even if you don't fish, you know, what we really need to do uh, is we, we need to transition to a mark selective fishery where we are allowed to harvest these U S hatchery fish and where we clip all of our hatchery fish in Canada. Currently we only clip 10%. So we're seeing about a 50% hatchery rate. If we clipped all of our fish, it probably closer to 60 or 70%. Uh, and the recreational angling community and the marine community is is all about just harvesting those hatchery fish. Uh, it's sustainable. It's profitable. It's it's good socially and economically. And it can be good for uh, commercial, recreational, and First Nations. So that's really the direction that we need to go. And we only have about a minute left, but you mentioned uh, things change on July 15th. So what changes then? Uh, on July 15th, uh, the Chinook that... Um, the upper Fraser Chinook, they, they've passed through. So area 28 and area 17, so up in Howe Sound and over towards Nanaimo and the Gulf Islands, those will be open for one Chinook a day. And then on August 1st, uh, area 29, which is off the Fraser mouth uh, from the north arm to the south arm, will open up for Chinook again uh, one a day. And will that, do you think that'll, will that be enough of a boost or enough of a change to, to help salvage what's been lost? Well, we're already, the, the community, the recreational and marine community is generally busy in July and August anyway, so you can't really make up for the losses that we've occurred through March, April, May. You can't um, run that, that kind of community on, on 60 days. Uh, so we really need to look at options going forward. We need to work with everybody and make sure that this doesn't happen again next year, because if it does, we're just putting a close sign on BC. All right, Jason, we'll leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks so much for joining us again today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.